0: Church, this morning, uh, we are continuing in the Old Testament book of Proverbs. Proverbs is one of the books known as the wisdom literature of the Bible. The others are Job, Ecclesiastes, Psalms, and Song of Solomon. Proverbs is written by numerous sages and wise men, but its primary author is King Solomon. The purpose of this book is to root us deep down in the fear of the Lord so we might walk wisely. So you may recall the first nine chapters are made up of lectures from a father to his son, urging him to take the way of wisdom, not foolishness. And then the ensuing chapters, chapters 10 through almost the end of the book, show us those two paths and how wisdom and folly play themselves out in everyday life. We've defined wisdom thus far in our study as the right view of God and his world, and living life in light of that. The right view of God and his world, and living life in light of that. And this morning we come to chapter 3, which Noah has just read for us. Uh, Chapter 3. Uh, some think it's divided into two separate lectures from the father to his son. Others think there's just one lecture here. But regardless, it's a long chapter, which we will barely scratch the surface of this morning. But by God's grace, we will hit some of the peaks of the iceberg that emerge from the sea of this chapter. This passage digs deeper into why and how we must choose wisdom. So this morning, we are going to scatter out five brief points, five brief ways wise people live in this world. Remember, our desire, as we read in the first seven verses of this book, is to be guided into wisdom as we approach Proverbs as a church family. Ultimately, to be guided into the fullness and wholeness of God's good design for His creation and for us. Made in his image. Ultimately, we come to Proverbs to see more clearly the one who is the very wisdom of God incarnate, our Lord Jesus Christ. So, five things to think about this morning from this passage. First, the wise trust in the Lord. The wise trust in the Lord. So, even if you've never read Proverbs, you've probably heard somewhere. Uh, a version of verses 5 and 6, right? Look with me there. These are the most popular verses in all of Proverbs, and for good reason. Indeed, they are some of the most popular verses in all of the Bible. I think they're the fifth and sixth most read verses on Bible Gateway, okay? Just putting it in context for us. Here, the father tells his son, "'Trust in the Lord with all your heart, and do not lean on your own understanding.'" In all your ways, acknowledge him, and he will make straight your paths. So again, right off the bat, church family, we're reminded here that true wisdom comes in relationship with the all-wise God. So if we are to know how best to live our lives here, we must know the author of our lives there. And knowing God must mean that we will then trust God. The Father says, trust in the Lord. And the idea of trust that he's getting at is further explained in the next phrase, right? Do not lean on your own understanding. So trusting the Lord, then means to lean on the Lord, to rely on Him in every way. And as I was thinking about this this past week, I think you and I, those of us who are Christians here this morning, we often talk about trusting the Lord. It's one of the things we talk about the most. In our conversations with each other. But I don't know about you, but I often think about trust primarily in times of hardship. How can I trust the Lord when everything is falling apart? And that's super important, right? We preach many passages on many, or many sermons on many passages that deal with just that. Often that's why a sovereign God allows trials into our lives in the first place so that our trust is weaned off of other things that will fail us and is placed primarily on the foundation of the Lord. But I think it can also be difficult, and this is for me, I don't know about you, to see how much we need trusting in God when things seem totally great. When we have our hands firmly on the steering wheel and there's no turbulence in the flight, I know I just mixed my metaphors there, we just... We see that the Lord is good. He's giving us so many blessings. Our plans are working out. Engines are humming smoothly. We see this in the history of God's Old Testament people of Israel. That they they forget who God is and how much they need him when, when their lives are running with milk and honey. Trust is not just for hard times, because trust is all-encompassing of our lives. You see that? The Father says we must trust in the Lord, how? With all our hearts. Acknowledge Him, how? In all our ways. This means a trust that is not just for the hard times, but is for all of the times. It's for all of life. It's for the times we feel out of control, and for the times that we feel like God is just blessing us, and our cups are overflowing. It's not just for the little minutiae we need to make decisions about every day. It's for the whole scope of life. There in verse 6, to acknowledge God is more than just how we use that word acknowledge. It doesn't mean, just mean recognize him or just realize his presence with us. No, it means to know him. To have fellowship with him. One author puts it like this, to know God in all your ways is to invite his presence into all daily activities and decisions. Man, is that hard to do. Christian, if you would be wise, if you would trust God in all areas of your life, in your career, your family, your plans, you will invite him into each one. His wisdom may end up having a different plan for you than you have for you, but his wisdom will always be for your good. And so a wise person lives entirely before the gaze of God. Nothing is off limits for the Christian's trust. The wise person trusts God with everything. That trust is essential to be wise and walking in the right path. Remember, Proverbs is full of this idea of paths, two paths to take, the path of righteousness and the path of foolishness. So years back, uh, when our sending church, who I worked with for a number of years, hosted an outreach for local high schoolers, I put in many, many hours of, driving a 15-passenger van careening around Sterling, trying to pick up as many teenagers as I could and bringing them to Bible study. And if you've ever driven these monsters called 15-passenger vans, you'll know how differently they handle compared to a normal vehicle. You have to literally brake like 50 feet sooner at a red light or you'll get to know the next car very intimately. if you've ever driven these 15-passenger vans in any official capacity, you've needed to take a short online training, right? And one of the things they say about vans in this training is that when you have only four or five people in the car, you need to to make sure not each one one of them claims a bench to themselves. That's going to throw off the weight of the entire vehicle and make it even more liable to tip over or to lose control. You need to stack them all up in the front of the van and then disperse them out in the back. And it's not a perfect illustration, but I think there is an illustration there for putting our trust in the Lord. See, if in the van of our lives, we spread our weight, spread our trust, spread what we lean on all around to different people, different events, different campaigns, different programs, and we're trying to make sure that our eggs are all in different baskets so if one fails, then we'll be good still. I think... The, the path we take will be a more of a careening, tipsy-toppy, topsy-turvy path. But if we place all our weight, all our trust, on God alone, as the ultimate place of our trust, well then, as Proverbs says, the Lord will make straight our path. It will be a safer, more secure drive. The wise put all their trust, Ultimately, in the Lord. Second thing we see in this chapter. The wise display humility. The wise display humility. And this is very much part and parcel of trusting the Lord, right? To trust in the Lord means not relying on our own understanding. To trust in the Lord then must mean we humble ourselves. And we see that in the very next verse. Look at verse 7. Be not wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. So, while the world may encourage us to trust in ourselves more, the Father here in verse 7 says, No, you actually need a healthy dose of self-doubt to be wise. Why? Because wisdom is not found primarily inwardly, but primarily upwardly in a right relationship with God. Wisdom, apart from the Lord's wisdom, is air quotes wisdom. That doesn't mean people who are not in relationship with the Lord are are stupid. It doesn't mean that at all. We said that in our first gathering together. But it means they're missing out on the source of wisdom itself. Wisdom, apart from the Lord, is wisdom really in appearance only because it lacks the real substance of the truth that leads to a flourishing Wise life. True wisdom is rooted in God, in the fear of the Lord, there in the second line of verse 7. To fear the Lord is to bend oneself in submission to his sovereign will and to revere his awesome power. And that's the foundation of wisdom. And that cannot coexist with self reliance and arrogant pride. It cannot. There in the second half of verse 7, we see one of the ways the fear of the Lord affects our lives. It means we turn away from evil. So here's a, a helpful way to diagnose your spiritual health this week. And whether you actually have a fear of the Lord. Are you turning away from evil? When you see temptations to sin, do you seek to turn from them to the Lord? I love how one author talks about the fear of the Lord, and this is getting a little bit too scientific for me, but forgive me if I mess it up. This fear of the Lord has both a centrifugal and a centripetal force. So basically, the fear of the Lord pushes you away because you're so in awe of his presence that you, you hide your face, sort of Isaiah 6 style. But then for those who are wise, the fear of the Lord also pulls you in. And I think that's what happens when we turn from evil ways. We turn and we the fear of the Lord not only can repel us in our sin, but it draws us close in his mercy. The wise display humility. Third thing to see this morning, the wise accept discipline. The wise accept discipline. See how all these characteristics kind of go, go together? It's almost like this is the same chapter. But I, I mean, it's, it, it's usually... The, the cocky person who hates to be corrected, right? To receive discipline. It's the wise person who trusts not in himself but in God, who is proud, not proud, but humble. This person, the person, not God, this person is not proud but humble, and then he receives rebuke as benefit. Look at verse 11. My son, says the father, do not despise the Lord's discipline or be weary of his reproof, for the Lord reproves him whom he loves, as a father the son in whom he delights. The wise experience the painful discipline of their father God, and do not respond with rejection or anger, but with acceptance and assurance. By no means does this mean discipline is fun. So when we often talk about self-discipline, right? Working out, eating better, reading God's word every morning. Even that's pretty miserable when we try to discipline ourselves because we don't like to be to be fenced in like that. And it gets even worse when someone else is the one disciplining you, right? I mean, can they just let you off the hook for one second? In our sin, we can often reject good, healthy discipline because it's uncomfortable. And it's humbling. The wise accept discipline, especially the perfect discipline that comes from a perfect God. Why? What's the motivation to receive reproof even when it's painful, even when it's embarrassing? We see the motivation right there in verse 11, don't we? A good father loves his children. Everything changes when someone loves you. Doesn't it? Christian, when your Father in heaven disciplines you, it's showing you he loves you. And the author of Hebrews gets at this and quotes Proverbs in Hebrews chapter twelve. If you have your Bible, scroll scroll over or turn over to Hebrews twelve real quick. It's always great when the New Testament helps you interpret the Old Testament. And here we see one of those passages. Hebrews chapter 12, starting in verse 5. The author of Hebrews says, And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, or be weary when reproved by him, for the Lord disciplines the one he loves, and chastises every son whom he receives. That's Proverbs in Hebrews. But what are we to do with that? Well, the author goes on. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline, in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Verse 10. For our earthly fathers disciplined us for our short time, as it seemed best to them. God disciplines us for our good. Christian, it's not just a good idea to receive God's discipline. It's not just grin and bear it. Receiving God's discipline contains tremendous encouragement for the believer. in the assurance that you are really a child of God. Think about it. What kind of good, faithful father neglects to discipline his child? Every good father will seek to guide his son or daughter away from danger and towards security. And that takes discipline. So it is with God. Christian, if you are experiencing the reproof of God, you're experiencing the fatherhood of God. Accept it. Don't ignore it. When you read that passage of Scripture that rubs you the wrong way, pursue it. You'll see God's love there. You'll see more clearly your sonship and daughterhood to your Father there. In church, this is a way we serve one another as well, isn't it? Often, God sees fit to use as instruments of His rebuke our brothers and sisters in the local church. So sometimes we get this wrong. Sometimes we're just being arrogant or defensive or nitpicky, and we need to learn to forgive each other for bad rebukes. But other times, with right prayer and humility, we are God's instruments of rebuke and healthy discipline in one another's lives. Members of Loudon Valley Baptist Church, this is what you've covenanted to do in our membership Covenant. One of the promises we made to one another is to exercise an affectionate care and watchfulness over each other and to faithfully admonish and entreat one another as occasion may require. We'll quote that as a church in just a few minutes at our members' meeting. So the next time a brother or sister in this church speaks some hard words of love to you, before you react, consider whether this might be your kind Heavenly Father's discipline and humble your heart. The wise accept discipline. Fourthly, the wise love others. The wise love others. And we see this in verses 27 to 32. You see that? Christian wisdom is never a cul-de-sac. Wisdom is always a through way in which a right view of God and his world then spreads to our view of others in that world. So a right view of God vertically will affect the way we treat others horizontally. And we see that in these verses. Here, the father of Proverbs exhorts the son towards a love of his neighbor. A love that will give and not hold back. Look at verses 27 and 28. Do not withhold good from those to whom it is due, when it is in your power to do it. Do not say to your neighbor, Go and come again, tomorrow I will give it, when you have it with you. The wise path will mean not holding back good from your neighbor. Verse 29. Do not plan evil against your neighbor, who dwells trustingly beside you. Do not contend with a man for no reason, when he's done you no harm. So being wise and fearing the Lord will mean we love others, not use others. Being wise and fearing the Lord will mean we serve others for their good, and not just to extract their affirmation and approval. This is the mark of the wise person, the one who knows and acknowledges the Lord in all his ways. Dear Christians, this must mark us as well. Part of a humble Godward life Is a giving of oneself in loving service to others. And isn't that the pattern our Savior has left for us? Jesus deserved all of heaven's glory and yet willingly gave up those riches to be made a servant, even to die on a cross for sinners like you and like I. And as those who have been saved by His blood and given new life in His name, we will, we must begin to see our faith evidenced in loving others like he has loved us. This has been a trademark of Christians for centuries. So in the third century AD, a pandemic killed thousands in the Roman Empire. And during that time, here's what Dionysius, the bishop of Alexandria in North Africa, said about Christians. Most of our brother Christians showed unbounded love and loyalty, never sparing themselves and thinking only of one another. Heedless of danger, they took charge of the sick, attending to their every need and ministering to them in Christ. And with them departed this life serenely happy. For they were infected by others with the disease drawing on themselves the sickness of their neighbors, and cheerfully accepting their pains. Many, in nursing and curing others, transferred their death to themselves and died in their stead. Sounds like Jesus, doesn't it? Now, I'm not advocating for foolhardy disregard of health department guidelines during our own pandemic, But Christian, consider how God is calling you to Christian neighbor love during this season. This is the path of wisdom. The wise love others. So how might you put aside your plans, your rights, this week to self-sacrificially love your neighbor? Finally, the wise receive blessings. The wise receive blessing. And this is where, this is the kind of catch-all point. This is kind of the, I think, the most overarching theme in this chapter. Throughout, we see blessings that come to those who walk wisely and listen to the Father's wisdom. And ultimately, it means God's wisdom. So look at verse 2. Those who listen and do not forget the Father's teaching will live long in peace. Verse 4, they will to receive favor. Verse 10, those who honor the Lord with their wealth will be prosperous. Verses 13 through 18, we see this hymn to woman wisdom that is bracketed by blessings. You see that? Verse 13, blessed is the one who finds wisdom. Verse 18, those who hold their fast are called blessed. Verses 21 to 26, we see the blessed safety and security that come to those who are wise and to will have discretion their feet won't slumber their sleep will be sweet and then finally in verses 33 to 35 we see the Lord will bless those who are righteous and the wicked he will curse the wise receive blessing but how in the world are we to read these promises well I think we need to keep two things in mind First, as we've said over and over again, Proverbs is wisdom literature. You do not read Proverbs like you read 1 Samuel. You do not read Proverbs like you read Exodus, or Nahum, or John. And as we continue on in Proverbs, we will see how Proverbs gives motivations to seek wisdom, but motivations that should not be mistaken as guarantees. In the sense that, Doing X and Y will definitely produce you earthly joy and riches and perfect, peaceful relationships. So, for example, later on in our study, we'll think about parenting and about that other famous verse in Proverbs about sparing the rod and appropriate discipline of children and how that will lead them to God. But each one of us knows of places that has not panned out. Does that mean God has told a lie in Proverbs? No, that's not what Proverbs is trying to do. Proverbs is trying to show us the wise way to live, not give us foolproof ways of twisting God's arm and getting Him to respond to our good deeds. It's showing us a way to live that is wise. Wisdom is seeing the right view of God in this world. And for those who follow God's design for this world, usually things will work out better. It makes sense that living within the design of the designer means that our Living it out will work out better for us. Good things will come. Generally, if you work harder, you'll make more money. As we'll see you later in our sermon on work. That's the case here in Proverbs. Wise living, usually, all things being equal, produces more stability and security than foolish living. Proverbs is isn't claiming to give us foolproof ways to be prosperous, but instead is trying to motivate us towards wisdom by showing us the good fruit that will usually come as a result. So that's wisdom literature. The second thing I think we need to keep in the background of our minds as we read these promises or these verses is that there's covenantal language all throughout chapter 3. So the son is to honor the Lord with his first fruits, verse 9, just like Israel would have done. With their sacrifices. The son is to listen to the father's commandments in verse one. That's the Hebrew word Torah. The Lord is called by His His covenantal name Yahweh in these chapters. And so while I don't think we can draw a direct line from all of God's covenant promises in the in Deuteronomy, straight to these to Israel in these proverbs. because Proverbs and, and wisdom literature has a broader universal reach than merely the Old Covenant, I still think the Covenant is behind the scenes here. So think back to Deuteronomy. If you've read that book recently, think about God's promises over and over again. If you will listen, then you will be prosperous. You will have the land. Your flocks will be plentiful. But if you disobey my commands, you will be cursed. And I do think that covenant language, that idea is influencing Proverbs 3 here and providing the the father here with that rhythm of right living and blessing, wrong living and curse. Both of those things are behind the scenes here. There are both motivations that aren't really guarantees, and yet there are things that are promises. Like if you fear the Lord and turn away from evil, you will have wisdom. So how are we to grapple with these things? We will continue to do that. But regardless of whether you take the covenantal framework or the wisdom literature framework, when you think about these blessed verses, there's a problem that rises either way. And that problem is the brokenness of this world and the brokenness of our hearts. See, even when God tells his people, obey me and get blessings, they don't. They eventually are driven into exile and punished under the hand of God for forgetting his ways. And with regards to wisdom literature, well, yes, the world usually works this way, but oftentimes it doesn't. God's good design has been corrupted by our sin, and so following these wise paths may very well grant us some earthly prosperity, but they might not. This world is broken. Friends, we need someone to break our brokenness. We need someone who we can rely on not only to straighten our paths, but to walk our paths perfectly before us, paving the way for us. Church, we need Jesus. And the good news of Proverbs is that it constantly points us ahead to the perfect wise man. The one greater than Solomon. The one who feared the Lord and turned away from evil, as we read here. The one who found favor in the sight of God and man, like we read here. And yet the one, if you look at verse 33, was not met with God's blessing, but with God's curse. Jesus led the perfect life and was cursed as a result. Yet in that seemingly unjust execution at the cross, perfect justice was executed. Jesus willingly underwent the punishment for our sin. He lovingly suffered our brokenness in full so that we could now be set free from sin, forgiven, redeemed. And so ultimately, I think these motivations and these blessings will all turn out to be true. Just not in this lifetime. Friend, if you trust in this wise man, your life will be changed. will have eternal life. Your days will literally never come to an end. In Jesus, you will have eternal riches. Your wealth will literally never run dry. In Jesus, you will have every blessing in the heavenly places. And as Ephesians 1 says, you already do. Friend, do you see how this Jesus is worthy of all your trust. Don't lean on your own understanding. Look to God's wisdom, shown most beautifully in his Son, slain at the cross for you, risen in victory for you. Seek Jesus and find eternal wisdom. Let's pray. Lord, our wisdom is found in Christ alone. Thank you, Jesus, for the cross of your affliction, your judgment, our salvation. We pray, Holy Spirit, that you would now make us truly wise in Christ. Lord, as those who have been redeemed, help us now, this side of heaven, to see the good design of this world and live in light of the fear of the Lord looking to heaven, where the curse will be no more, corruption will be gone, foolishness will be forever put away. And Lord, we pray then that you would help us to set our gaze on you and trust in you completely, with every day pour out our souls and trust your mercy. We love you.